Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pathfinder presented by Payload, the leading digital media company in the space industry. We have a big guest today, Chris Kemp, CEO of Astra, small launch and propulsion provider on the show. You may recall that Astra went public back in 2021 at a $2 billion valuation, today trading at just a fraction of that price. We chat with Chris about the current state of the business, the financial health, lessons learned, and the future of the company. On to the show. Chris, very excited to have you on the show. Great to be back. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to get, I'm just going to jump right into it, Chris. Um, in a recent article, uh, you were described as a fighter. And I definitely, definitely agree with that. It's been a roller coaster since we last had you on the show. Um, and of course, since Astro went public. So maybe just a level set. Um, why don't we get started? Like, where is the company today in terms of active lines of business? Um, what are you working on? What are you focusing on? And what maybe aren't you focusing on anymore? Yeah, thanks. And it's great to be back. Uh, great, great to be here. Um, we're, we're here in the new rocket factory behind me. And where we've really been focused is uh, the businesses where we have customers. Right? So when we went public, actually the day we went public, uh, we, had, we had a much uh, broader vision. We wanted to not only focus on launching satellites, but also uh, building satellites. And so we acquired a company, uh, great technologists called Apollo Fusion, and we spent a lot of time uh, taking that product and really getting it uh, to the point where uh, it was tested in space and we could produce it to scale. We started selling that product uh, alongside the launch business. And as you know, this, this last year uh, in 2022, we made a really tough decision to, to really narrow our focus to these two core businesses uh, that we were in, right? which were uh, not only getting things to space, but keeping things in space once they're there through our satellite propulsion business. And uh, we've had a great run. Um, we've, we've had a number of uh, leading satellite companies uh, purchase uh, these engines and uh, we're contracted now uh, to ship hundreds of these engines um, over the next couple of years. And we're working really hard right now to make sure every single one of these engines is reliable. Uh, we have nine of them in space right now. They've performed flawlessly. We want to continue that track record uh, of just a, an incredibly reliable product that not only is um, you know, a great product at a great price, but um, you know, we can really build a lot of trust with our customers that Astro spacecraft engines can power their satellites in space. And then the team behind me is working on returning to the pad with an equally reliable launch vehicle. And uh, that's, been a, that's been a journey. Um, talk more about uh, the interview. So let, let's actually, um, I'd love to go back to the original thinking behind Astra, right? And, and um, we were just talking about this before we started the episode, but, you know, we met at a conference at, at a Morgan Stanley conference back in um, the end of 2021. And I remember asking you the same question, like, what was the origin? Why, why, why did you start Astra? And you pointed to a, a John Walker piece from 1993, which I think was called like a rocket a day keeps costs away or something. Um, so really the foundation for the business model, you know, reducing the cost of, of a rocket by constantly improving the design and leveraging scale um, through launching frequently, right? But would love to hear maybe, um, you know, let's, let's kind of start there, right? Because your original goal was launching every single day um, or launching weekly and then eventually daily, right? So um, yeah, let's, let's maybe talk about the original thinking behind starting Astra. Right. The original, the original idea was through scale, you can bring the cost of launch down. And really through scale, you can bring the cost of space services down as well. 
uh, in order to make a service uh, like a global broadband service in low Earth orbit, you actually need to have thousands of satellites, not just a couple of satellites. And so scale, uh, at least relative scale, was required. And when you look at the space industry historically, uh, you would build a couple of space shuttles, and then you would reuse them and refurbish them. Or you would build a couple of really expensive satellites, and you'd park them out in uh, geo for, for 10 or 15 years insure them and um, make sure that they had a very long life. The new model really pioneered by companies like Planet, where you could put a satellite in low Earth orbit. And in low Earth orbit, uh, you have the benefit of uh, the satellite can typically operate uh, with a much smaller aperture. If it's a radio uh, or it's a camera, a smaller lens, uh, you can take much higher resolution pictures simply because you're closer to the Earth, right? And the problem, though, is these satellites in low Earth orbit uh, would basically only last for a few years. Uh, there's uh, oxygen in the upper atmosphere that would cause uh, deterioration of solar panels, lenses, um, and then the upper atmosphere would create drag that would cause satellites to deorbit. Now, this is kind of a good thing because people are worried about space debris and garbage in space. Turns out <clears throat> in low Earth orbit, the Earth has a great garbage collector, which is the upper atmosphere and gravity. And so these satellites will just naturally deorbit couple of years. Um, but the problem is, is uh, because the satellite is so low, you can only see a really small area underneath it or cover a very small area if you're trying to uh, provide a communication capability. And so you need lots of satellites. And so instead of just having a couple of satellites, you need hundreds or even thousands. And in some cases, uh, there are satellite constellations on the books that call for tens of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit. And so when, when Astra goes back to its you know, day one, the original idea, uh, it was really about how scale uh, was the key to the whole business. So instead of using uh, really exotic technologies in the rocket, aerospikes and you know, reusability, carbon fiber, uh, we would simply, um, we were inspired by you know, aluminum cans. And you know, how could we make the vehicle, which is really effectively just a, a big aluminum cylinder uh, with a pointy end, and an engine that in, actually has fewer moving parts than an internal combustion engine. Uh, how could we make these things really inexpensive by designing them to be produced, you know, in the case of the rocket, one a day, in the case of the spacecraft engines, hundreds per year. And so we really set out to do that on day one. And that, that resulted in a company, a very different kind of company that built, uh, that really designed the rocket from day one to be produced more like an automobile or more like a a general aviation aircraft, like Tesla. And that was the thesis. And that paper is a really interesting read. If you go find it, you can still it's out on the internet. Uh, I think John Walker published it originally in uh, the early 1990s on the Fermilab website. Yeah. And it's, uh, the thesis is simply that if you make on order hundreds of rockets, the price comes down dramatically. Yeah, it's a, it's a great piece. Actually, highly highly recommend. So um, now now um, just to get back to sort of the original goal, right? So kind of fast forward to where we are today. What do you think has prevented um, you guys from you know reaching or at least making significant progress towards that goal today? Well, everyone everyone loved the idea, right? The vision was indisputable. Everybody liked the idea of a small launch that could take a satellite exactly where it needed to go. You know, in exactly the right orbit, uh, as as at a, at a low cost. Right. The problem actually isn't in whether the market wants it. 
right now the market will typically wait six months to a year for a ride share. Uh, it's kind of like the bus you know, where your satellite has to wait a long time to get to the, the ride share mission and then the bus drops you off at the wrong place. But in, in the case of a bus, you might only have to walk a few minutes. A satellite will typically take um, weeks or even months to position itself into its final altitude or orbit. It needs a propulsion system or some sort of orbital transfer vehicle, which is itself expensive, to get it to its final orbit. Whereas a small launch vehicle, uh, like the Astro vehicle, can take the satellite exactly where it needs to go. The problem is you need to do it, right? And, you know, I think I've said before, in terms of privately funded space companies, Astra is one of only three that can count satellites in space that, that, that have, they've put there. And that includes SpaceX. So it's a pretty small list of companies that have actually been able to even make it work once, uh, let alone make it work at scale. And we started to scale the production of Rocket 3 last summer. We were making about a rocket a month. We were using about a third of the facility behind me to produce one of these Rocket 3s per month. Just before we had in, before any of the equipment had shown up uh, for the rocket production line. And what we found was that Astra uh, had just simply uh, underinvested in more or less everything required to make the vehicle consistently reliable. And uh, that's because we, we designed Rocket 3 when we were a very small company. Um, we had uh, just over 100 employees when we reached orbit. And uh, that's an incredibly small team. We're a much larger team today. And so, so I think what we've, what we've done over the past two years since we last spoke is we've invested very heavily, not only in the, in the factory and the production lines, but in all of the different things that you need to do uh, from an from uh, engineering perspective to look at every single failure mode, uh, do an analysis, um, think about every, every uh, thing that you can do to mitigate all those failure modes. There's a tremendous amount of work in the overall systems architecture design. So, that, so thinking about the requirements, managing requirements with a lot more rigor, um, all the way through uh, the individual uh, sub-assemblies having all of their build instructions fully documented um, before you build them. So that when you build the uh, assembly for the second time, it's exactly the same. And so things that, um, the, way, the way to think about it is if you're a small company, your engineering team is doing the design. They're also very involved in building the prototype. Uh, they're also involved in testing it. They're also involved in operating it or launching it. Uh, that works very well when you have one team that does all those things. That doesn't scale. So the, the chasm that you have to cross to go from maybe making the thing work a couple times a year to making it work you know, dozens of times a year, or hundreds of times a year, is designing it so that a different team of people can put it together and a different team of people can test it and then a different team of people can operate it and have all of that happen perfectly without the designers there present at every step of the way. And that's actually what's really quite, quite challenging. It requires a larger team. It requires much more discipline and rigor um, in your engineering processes and your tools and your systems. And we've made that investment this time. And you know, we saw you know, SpaceX made that investment between Falcon 1 and Falcon 9, and it worked. And they've had hundreds of successful flights because they, they just really made a, a tremendous amount of investment in, in the rigor in that program. Right. Now, um, just thinking about sort of the, uh, um, the, the thinking about Rocket 4, maybe just give us a quick like rundown of the specs of Rocket 4 
Um, and then uh, let's just talk really quickly, um, a, sort of another seemingly obvious question that I'm sure you get quite a bit, which is that every launch company is effectively pivoting, pivoting away from small launch, right? And I think if you look at Rocket Lab, I was actually looking at this the other day. Yeah, um, so define small. Is, is yeah, would, that's a yeah. good question. Um, call it like sub thousand kilogram, right? Or, you know, you, one might even argue sub few thousand kilogram. Um, so, so, uh, I was looking at, um, rocket labs, um, financials the other day. Right. And if you just take a look at electron, they've launched that, they've launched that vehicle successfully 36 times. Right. So amazing from a technical like progress and achievement pr- perspective. But if you actually look at the financials, I think that entire program is still operating effectively. I think at best case, like flat margins, right. After launching 36 times. So like, what do you see that others do? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I can't comment about Rocket Lab, but I, but I would say that uh, there, is a, uh, there is a capacity that is the minimum viable capacity. And that number has changed, right? So if you go back 10 years, there were only really big satellites and really small satellites, right? So CubeSats like the Planet Constellation were by far the largest uh, example. So, so there were a lot of companies that, Emerged to service CubeSats, right? So companies that uh, had deployers that could deploy batches of CubeSats on a rideshare mission. But then the market has evolved because as these CubeSats demonstrated commercial fit in the market, uh, the companies decided that, that they wanted more resolution, more capacity, more onboard processing, and then they got bigger. And then uh, what happened was SpaceX began launching Starlink satellites. And more importantly, Starlink as a service uh, began to operate. And people realized, uh, wow, from low Earth orbit, you can have incredibly low latencies. And there is, you, you can actually have enough capacity to support um, a relatively large number of users. And so then Amazon came in with Piper. And then the DoD started to realize, wow, these satellites are very important to support uh, communications from a, a military perspective. And, they, and the SDA started uh, designing a constellation it was built on top of a competitive commercial ecosystem of small satellites. And so now we have a significant government investment. Just in, a, in the last week, you've seen you know, north of a billion dollars be awarded to a number of different companies to build small satellite constellations, right? That will literally be America's uh, first line of defense for tracking and communicating uh, when, when uh, missiles are launched. And uh, this is an incredible constellation. And uh, so what we've seen is, is that the satellites have gotten bigger, right? So the satellites are now uh, on the order of four or 500 kilograms. And so that's um, too big for some of the small launch vehicles, uh, certainly too big for our original Rocket 3 vehicle that kind of had a maximum capacity around 100 kilograms, even at its final, in its final configuration. Uh, so we made the strategic decision to go bigger, but still small, right? So Rocket 4 will have an initial capacity of around 600 kilograms for these communication satellites. And with a kind of a block to upgrade to its engines, we'll anticipate that going just north of 1,000 kilograms. Uh, and that will allow us to service basically all of these small satellites and all of these small satellite constellations that um, we're aware of in LEO, um, or the vast majority, I would say all of them. Uh, I would say the, the vast majority of these, these new satellite constellations. And why that's exciting is, if we keep the rocket small, then we can always launch one of them or even tens or hundreds of them, depending on how big they are, 
uh, and the launch cost will be relatively low compared to a larger launch vehicle. Uh, and the rocket equation on a reusable rocket is your friend, uh, but scale is your friend uh, if, you're, if you're manufacturing these things in high enough volume. Right. So now you have current existing contracts with the Space Force and the DIU, correct? Uh, Space Force, DIU, NASA, and some other commercial companies. That's right. Okay. And are those like are those mi- are those milestone based? I mean, I assume they're milestone based. Um, how, how are those? Um, how how are I guess those organizations viewing the program right now? Well, they're very actively involved in the program. So, in the case of the Space Force, uh, we were hosting them uh, here for one of the first. Uh, reviews that we do called the service readiness review. Uh, there's another review. Uh, we're putting a, a, a pretty significant amount of uh, documentation together for them for their review this quarter. And in each of these reviews, uh, there's typically a milestone and a payment associated with that milestone. Uh, so the team right now is working very hard this quarter to put together this next next uh, review milestone together. Got it. Um, now. Uh, just to kind of um, take a step back, uh, so when you look at sort of Rocket Three, right? Um, one could potentially argue that you know the, this it was it was done very quickly, right? The design process and the development process, and obviously it was you were at a very different point um, into uh, in, in the company when you developed and designed it, like you said. So obviously the reliability reliability of Rocket Three, just given sort of how many times you ended up launching and how many times it was successful, something I think around. 50%. All right. How do you thinking, how are we thinking about rocket four and how do you improve, how do you plan to improve the reliability, right? What are sort of some of the engineering decisions that you're taking that's different from what the development of three would look like? Well, it's a great question. You know, in some ways, the smaller the rocket, the harder it is to make it reliable because you can't just throw margin at things. You know, you, you have to have, uh, you have to extract the maximum amount of performance and weight savings possible just to make a smaller rocket useful payload perspective. So with Rocket 4, we do have a little bit more room to play. You know, not as much as a Starship, for example, but um, it's, it's certainly a much larger vehicle. Uh, we have, uh, you know, from a reliability perspective, uh, a lot of the reliability work comes very early in the design of the vehicle. So just considering all the possible failure modes, making sure that you know, you, you've You've designed and allocated your margins effectively across all the different systems uh, and made, made the right trades. Uh, you can always make the thing incredibly expensive, either uh, by using um, all the most expensive parts and the most expensive materials and x-raying everything and uh, having a tremendous amount of testing at every single part and every single subsystem. And then you, you'll, just, you'll, you'll have a product that doesn't work. So it, it's actually not true to say that you should aim for perfect reliability because perfect reliability would be uh, exorbitantly expensive and no one would buy no one would buy launches from you and so it's about threading that needle and making it uh, designing it so that you get the most inherent reliability in your design possible with the materials that you're using with the processes that you're using balancing your risks across all of your major subsystems uh, so that you don't have so much risk in one area that that risk materializes in a, in a failure, um, you know, too, too often. Um, category two mission, which is what the Space Force mission that we're working on, uh, implies a 95% target reliability of the program. So there's an enormous amount of work that the U.S. government and the, and the DOD puts into the mission assurance uh, regime, which is, which is something that we do 
in close collaboration with them to ensure we at least hit that 95% or better reliability target. So uh, let's just talk for a second about redundancy. So um, Rocket 3, in effect, and this is me not knowing anything, I'm just assuming based on I know the cost structure you were trying to hit, was prob- was, in a, was in effect, as my guess, a single string, right, in terms of components and architecture for the most That's part. Correct. There were a lot of single string systems. Correct. So, how are you thinking about redundancy in Rocket Four? Like, you're, you're, in, and I think the public number you've said you, you've said recently in a recent interview was, I think five million to build to not to build, excuse me, five million purchase price with about fifty yeah, percent so gross margins. That's right. It's scale, yeah. And I think yeah. um, individual flights, if you're just buying a one-off flight, could be could be more than that. Um, but uh, you know what we want to do is is show that this is a viable option for folks that are doing mega constellation deployments or maintenance. Right. So mm-hmm. $5 million at 600 kilograms, uh, that's about 83, 33 kilogram, uh, which isn't that much more expensive than a SpaceX rideshare. And so it, it really competes uh, in the rideshare space versus a dedicated launch space in terms of price, but you get the benefits of a dedicated launch. Um, yeah, so that's, that's been the focus is, is, to, is to balance cost against, against the, and, and you know, of course, with a rideshare, uh, you've got the, uh, the problem of you're deploying uh, alongside tens, if not hundreds of other little satellites. And so there's risks associated with that, that as well. Chris, tell me uh, a little bit about the engine development for Rocket 4. How are you thinking about um, how much of the engine you develop in-house versus um, you know, external, external providers? Yeah, it's a great question. Again, in Rocket 3, we developed both engines in-house. So we had the first stage engine, we called that Delphin. Uh, it was a 6,500 pound thrust electric engine. Uh, we developed the electric motors, uh, the battery packs, speed controllers, all the software for that, the combustion chambers, everything. So we have a lot of that experience in-house here. Uh, Mike Judson led that development. Um, Mike is now leading the first stage engine development here on our propulsion and fluid systems team. Uh, for the upper stage engine, we decided to purchase that engine. Uh, that allowed us to focus all of our resources on our first stage engine development. And the upper stage engine that was developed by Ursa Major had the right thrust output that we needed. It was also a company that spent a tremendous amount of time and energy developing this engine, more than we could. Uh, they raised a lot of capital and, and spent uh, the better part of a, a decade, uh, seven, six or seven years just on this engine. And um, we, we, we feel that um, it's, a, it's a very high-performing engine, got a great ISP, and that gave us an upper stage that could, uh, again, throw a considerably uh, larger payload into orbit. And um, again, it allowed us to focus our energy on the first-stage engine. So with our first-stage engine, we took a slightly different path. We wanted to put a turbo pump turbo pumps on both engines. Uh, for the first stage engine, uh, we wanted to make those engines as simple and inexpensive as possible. Uh, so um, we decided to use what's called a tap-off combustion cycle. So you're using the uh, gases from the combustion chamber vented into the, the turbo pump to spin the, the pump. And um, we were, were able to uh, find some great technology for that, which we've been working uh, and building on for the past few years. And I can't talk a lot about the, <laughs> um, the, the contractual relationships there, but I can tell you 
um, you know, we've got, it's a great engine and sure. uh, the team's been working really hard on it. And it's, um, it's able to produce um, upwards of uh, 35 to 40,000 pounds of thrust per engine. So we're, we're going from five engines that collectively produced about 35,000 pounds of thrust to two engines that collectively produce 75 to 80,000 pounds of thrust. So we have um, a considerably like twice the thrust and you know, five times less engines per capita per engine. Right. And I think those with the, uh, with the investigative noses might know what you're referring to, but we'll leave it at that. Um, so uh, I do want to ask um, on strategic partnerships, right? So, um, you know, if, when you, when you look at, a lot of a lot of your call it competitors right or not a lot i should say some of your competitors um you know there's strategic partnerships with primes or there's usually some type of large ownership backing or some marquee pre-order right um in the absence of that how are you thinking about um any type of strategic partnerships um are you is this something you're considering um obviously it'd be hugely positive signaling in in certain cases is that a scenario that you're even thinking about yeah we in our most recent uh, earnings update, um, we did mention that we have uh, brought in PJT Partners, which is uh, mm -hmm. one of the, the shops that we've used in the past here at Astra. Um, we're very interested in exploring commercial uh, strategic uh, opportunities out there because, again, you know, we've got, we've got a really unique uh, set of assets, right? We've got uh, some of the leading uh, aerospace companies using our propulsion systems and their satellites. Um, we've got a very unique capability we've built to produce Rocket 4. And uh, the software stack that we've built to automate operations is, is pretty unique. And you know, as a company right now, uh, it's, it's really tough in the market. So if the only thing we were relying on was uh, shareholders um, buying stock, um, that, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. So we've, we've just announced, we've put in place an ATM, we put in a debt facility and, you know, further exploring any strategic opportunities that are out there just makes sense for us. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we believe in a strong industrial space ecosystem. And I think Astra can play a role in that given we've already made a lot of the investments in scale uh, that um, are going to be required to put large constellations in orbit and certainly on the launch side to deliver and maintain those constellations. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll, um, uh, you know, there's no question, I think, you know, someone of your position, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of like, um, you know, frustration from investors. But I will say that one thing that I don't think people give enough credit to is even some of these very, very well funded companies out there that seemingly on the outs from the outside looking in, and I'm not going to point to to any company itself. You know, there's a lot of issues out there. And, you know, there's a lot of well funded, seemingly well funded launch companies that, you know, haven't gotten to orbit and are have capital issues right and there's companies out there that need hundreds of millions if not case billions of dollars right and the capital markets are not a place you, this is not the time to be going out and raising that type of money so i actually wouldn't be surprised if there are companies which maybe on the paper on paper may look like they have um more mature or call it uh, better funded better capitalized launch businesses that you know, I, I would say looks can be deceiving, right? So this is a very, very different market right now for all launch companies. It's not it's, what it used to really, be. It, it's really hard. And, you know, when you begin with the thesis that through scale, you have the unique capability you are offering the customers, 
you have to invest in scale, right? So this, I'm in a quarter of a million square foot facility here designed uh, primarily to produce rockets, right? So behind me, you can kind of see there's the, the beginning of the rocket production line. You literally load a coil of aluminum in one side of the building and it's uncoiled, flattened, uh, laser cut, um, rolled up again, friction stir welded, hoisted over, circumferentially. So, I mean, th this, is, this is a production line really inspired by a car factory, uh, but it's, it's uh, impossible to actually make a rocket until you make the investment in the production line. And so right. we had a real challenge where we, we knew capital would be scarce you know, as, as, as the market began to struggle in 2022, but we either had to uh, decide to not do the thing that we said we were going to do um, or follow through with it right. and work with customers like the Space Force and others to, uh, to hopefully uh, show us that this is a capability that they need. And they are leaning in. And um, we're, we're here to deliver what we said we would deliver, which is a mass producible vehicle that uh, can meet the needs of the market. So looking back, uh, you know, I think uh, post back. I think the number that I'd, if I remember correctly, it was something like a quarter of a billion that was spent on the facility, on the manufacturing facility. And correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, there. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have the exact figure here, but I can tell you we did raise um, 500 million less fees and things like that. So I think sure. the, the net of that uh, was really split into, into two areas. We, we acquired Apollo Fusion. So yep. We made a considerable investment in building, investing in that program building a production facility to manufacture spacecraft engines down in Silicon Valley, down in Sunnyvale, um, and then expanding this facility so that we could. And then we did a lot of investments in the mission assurance area. So we have a whole reliability lab mm -hmm. and just broad investments in machines like CT scanners and x-ray machines and metrolo you know, metrology equipment so we can uh, ensure that there's a consistency in the parts going into all of our products. So um, looking back, right, would you... Do you, would you say that like the decision to capitalize the or or, or or spend the capital on those types of facilities was uh, well actually let me let me phrase this differently um, what would you have done differently if anything in terms of the capital outlays from the get go C considering that you have this balance right you need to spend the capital on the facility to actually get to the production capability that you need to be able to launch at the cadence that you'd like to launch at the same time. You know, you you're you're at the same time. You know, a company still in R and D phase, right? Not in production and manufacturing phase, right? So, would there would there have been anything differently you would have thought about in terms of like capital expenditures? Yeah, well, I think you know the other the other thing not to not to forget is if you don't have the equipment, you you, you can't design the rocket to be made on equipment that you don't have, right? So, for example, if if you intend to have a rocket that has a certain performance profile. And you need to use a certain kind of aluminum that's a certain thickness, um, and then you need to be able to weld it with a certain level of reliability. And so, for example, the friction stir welder, which is a completely custom Astra um, machine, and there's actually a nice video that, that we just put out on that whole process, you can't design it assuming that you have that capability and not have that capability because then you can't even build a prototype, right? Or the prototype that you build will not be representative of what you will then put into production. So, you know, there's, there's certainly a, a big chicken and egg problem here. And you, you do have to, at some point, make, make the investment. Right. Um, so, so I think that's, that's, a, that's a key, key thing. And what was the first part of your question? No, that, that, that was essentially, yeah, the, the question was effectively, um, if, you, if, you, if looking back on it, you would have spent the capital differently, effectively. Uh, yeah, I think if, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, I think 
had we known that the first NASA mission uh, would not work, um, and you know we had every belief that that that, that Rocket Three was going to fly those NASA flights out successfully, um, and when we had that issue, and, and it took us a good six months to root cause that issue, and, and there's a there's a there's a blog on it, my co-founder, uh, where you know I, I would say knowing what I know now. After we had the successful orbital flight, um, probably what we should have done is not attempted to scale production of Rocket 3. Uh, we now know that Rocket 3's capacity was not sufficient to meet the needs of a, a large number of new satellites that are now in the market. Uh, so satellites have gotten larger. Uh, we probably could have put that capital into extending our runway and, and giving, giving the team more time. To get Rocket Four out, so so if I had to do it all over again, we would have made the investments we made. Um, but after the successful flight of Rocket Three and, and putting those twenty-two satellites in orbit, uh, you know, if, again, I, I had perfect perfect knowledge of the future. I would have stopped right there and said, "Okay, everyone, focus on Rocket Four now." Um, it took us about six months to get there. Yeah. Okay? So, and, and look, and I in think that six months, we we bought a lot of inventory and we built a lot of rockets and. You know, a lot of capital went into scaling Rocket Three, and we had to scrap a lot of inventory for Rocket Three, and a lot of a lot of that capital could have gone into it all. Yeah, and look to, to, to your credit, if I asked that question to any launch startup or launch CEO, they would say that the hindsight's twenty twenty, and there's a million different things that they could have done differently, right? So, um, so I, I totally get it. So, okay, let, let's actually talk about the prop business because you know that's a that's a business that's firing on all cylinders, performing well, relatively large order book. Um, by my calculations, a few hundred engines, and you're talking about a two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollar average selling price, right? With a fifty percent gross margin. Now, I'm saying m- most things that you can find, right? The, these this is data points you can find easily online, um, and generating and positive cash flow, right? How, how do you let's let's set aside the launch business let's put, paint a scenario where the launch business goes away for whatever reason whether it's a strategic decision or a financial decision um how do you think about the prop business being a billion dollar business like how do you think about um you know what is your kind of view around sort of the long-term trajectory of the prop business and how do you scale that side of the business yeah i think it really does uh require two things one you know the market uh, has to see the demand for the thousands of satellites that I think many many people believe um, will uh, will emerge. Uh, there are certainly market scenarios where that demand doesn't materialize, and there's um, potentially you know only a couple of hundred satellites that are not mega constellations building their own propulsion systems. Um, I, I think we're increasingly seeing. Uh, the government be a large customer. Other governments come in in Europe and, and other places be customers. Um, the Telesat constellation was just funded, uh, so so I think we're starting to see more constellations of small satellites, which should uh, translate into a larger market. Uh, but that said, I also think that you know we've built a platform. You know, yes, we have a great spacecraft engine, but we also have an incredible team of people here that run. Uh, an aerospace machine shop capability, a reliability lab that's able to do ins- parts inspections. We have an enterprise software platform that's, that's ITAR compliant that can uh, do demand forecasting for parts. Um, we have a program management organization that is able to execute on you know, a large number of, of uh, customer programs in parallel um, while like, each having different assemblies that they're building in parallel in production. So I would say 
don't think of Astra as just a uh, spacecraft engine company, and just a rocket company. Uh, we've built a company that is able to produce things at scale. All the software that's behind that, all of the, the supply chain, all of the um, infrastructure behind me is, is servicing both of these two programs. And so, so I'd say, could we add a third? Um, perhaps, you know, yep. I, I think there is, there is a scenario where, you know, satellites are more than just propulsion systems, right? Satellites need solar arrays. Satellites need star trackers and reaction wheels and bus components and, uh, you know, payload things, optical terminals, RF phased array antennas and things. And so um, could some of what we've built here uh, be leveraged to manufacture other core components at scale? We've made the scale investment, right? So right. many companies in this capital market will find it very difficult to buy vacuum chambers the size of this room. Um, we've already made those investments. And so we'll continue to increase the efficiency with which we use the assets that we've already purchased and deployed. And so that'll create an opportunity for us to either have um, more efficiency uh, and then have more capacity, or potentially even in the future, we could, we could um, take on other, other core products. But, but I think, you know, as a, as a billion dollar business just selling spacecraft engines, uh, we would need to have all of the, uh, the companies that are out there successful um, and buying them from us. And I don't right. think that's realistic. Right, right. So, so I think, you know, some, some combination of the market continues to grow as it has for the past seven or eight years at, at a, you know, eight, 9% per year CAGR. Um, and also Astro would, would leverage the platform that it's built to make other things too. Would, would need to be true to make the whole are there any um and then and, and you know i know you have to be careful with what you say here but in terms of like any type of big catalyst potential contracts like is there any type is there like a possibility you get sourced into like a one web gen 2 constellation um you know capability where all of a sudden overnight you see your backlog grow from like you know where it is today to like three to you know 10 times you know um anything like that in the works yeah I'll say we're competing uh, for a number of large contracts, and uh, you know any of those contracts would see us um, need to further scale. And scale is what we're good at. So um, I hope you know I hope we have that opportunity. I, I hope that is presented. But I'll tell you this: um, if we win more contracts, it's because you know every day I wake up and personally attend a call and listen to any impediment impacting any customer and. And that has my attention. And we're doing everything we can to deliver for our customers spacecraft engines that work every time. And so, you know, you have the resources that we've invested in this, in this business behind these programs. And if uh, we do win, you know, these, these opportunities that are out there in the market, it will be, uh, it will be because we, we really focused on our customers and we delivered, we delivered on time and we delivered, more importantly, we delivered engines that worked every yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk a bit about financial health. Uh, you highlighted um, some of the things that you're working on right now with the at the money offering and the debt debt facility. Um, as of the end of June, um, I think the company reported something like 26 million of cash and equivalents on the balance sheet. Um, and I think uh, you guys forecasted that to be around 15 to 20 by the end of September. Um, how are you thinking about cash needs to the extent that you can share publicly any data points? How are you thinking about cash burn? 
Um, is the prop business spitting out enough cash flow to fund the business or at least fund a good chunk of the business? How are you thinking about cash needs, right? That's obviously the question everyone's thinking about and asking. I'm sure that's another one that you get all the time. Yeah, and keep tuning into our earnings calls where I give the official <laughs> updates. Um, yes. So you know, what I could do is I could summarize what, you know, obviously we think about cash all the time, every day. Um, what we're trying to do primarily is bring cash in by shipping spacecraft engines right now in the short term. Also, we bring cash in when we deliver milestones for the Space Force uh, and sign other contracts. So the best, the best way for me to finance the business is to deliver for our customers. The second best way uh, for me to ensure that we have sufficient cash is to uh, just absolutely be um, ruthless with expenses. And so um, we, have, we have looked across every opportunity uh, internally to, you know, can we do this? Do we need this software license? Do we need this? You know, do we need this light tower in the parking lot that we're renting? You know, do we? So, so I am looking over every decision that we've made over the past couple of years, and I'm making sure that we're not spending money on things that are not critical to delivering for customers. And then the third thing is, of course, um, as a public company, we have tools that we have put in place, such as the ATM facility, the debt facility, um, and then you know, if there is a fourth, it's we're also um, just in the market looking at various strategic options. Uh, strategic investments. Uh, we we have a lot of folks that are very excited about the businesses that we've built, and if there's if there's an opportunity there, um, I wanted to put it out there. Um, we're working with PJT to explore those opportunities for the company. So, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on that in just a second. Um, I do want to talk really quickly about team construction and, and and retention, right? So, you you know you're 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 going through or you've you've gone through this pretty tough time in a in a in the company's life cycle. Um, how are you thinking about retention and also like acquis- like talent acquisition, right? You've had a couple key technical leaders, I think, depart the firm. Um, you know, you're in the Bay Area, there's tons of talent there, but how are you thinking about just general retention and acquisition? Well, I would say that, you know, the, the team is incredible. Uh, you know, it's been one of the things that really allows Astra to, I mean, we, we, we put satellites in orbit uh, three years faster than any other company. Uh, we we've built this production facility. You know, we're not even ten years old, and you know, we we built we built a rocket factory that when we return to the pad with the reliable vehicle, we'll be able to produce at scale. Um, it's because of the team. Uh, it's not because of me. Uh, it's it's because um, we've got some of the most experienced leaders in the space industry leading these programs. Uh, on the launch side of the house, uh, we've got my co-founder, Dr. Adam London, uh, and Doug Kunzman. Uh, so Adam's kind of the tech lead. Um, or, uh, and then Doug Kunzman, who recruited out of Blue Origin. Um, Doug was brought in to, to lead the, uh, the new Shepard program, successful launch of the, the flight with uh, uh, Jeff and uh, Will Shatner. So I figured if, if, he can, if he can win that space race, and if the stakes were uh, Will Shatner and, and Jeff Bezos, um, you know, he can totally win our space race where the stakes are a, a flight working or not, a test flight working. So, so I'm I'm really confident in the team. Um, and then on the spacecraft engine side of the house, we brought in um, you know, Margaret Dinaray. She was always leading our, our mission management organization. She's incredible. Uh, we have under her Dalibor Duran, who was leading manufacturing at Planet um, for, for a couple of years, uh, now leading production. We just brought him in. So we've, we've managed to continue to bring in some really incredible talent, even as things have been challenging. People see, if, if you really are following this industry, Sure, it's, it's, it's challenging times economically, but every company is having challenging times economically. 
there isn't a space company out there that um, isn't looking at uh, their stock price or isn't isn't uh, looking at uh, having to, to cut folks. Um, and you know, so Astra is really trying to be a place where, yeah, it's tough, but also we're we're building some products that are flying to space for our customers, and we're 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 gonna we're gonna do things here that you're not gonna get a chance to do if you're inside a big aerospace company. Right. So, so, uh, Chris, we, we have, we're gonna have a lot of investors listening to this interview, right? Um, the company currently is trading around $70 million market cap, something like that, 60 or 70 last I checked a far cry, right? From the multi-billion dollar market cap we saw back in 2021. I mean, obviously that's the case for a lot of different companies, not just yourself, but w- in your mind, like today, like if you're talking to an investor, like what is the investment case for the company? Like why, uh, why buy the stock today? Think, um, help us kind of like, I would love to hear sort of your pitch on the upside scenario of the business. I would just look at who our customers are, right? I would look at uh, the, uh, the end customer of this is uh, industry. It's, it's the United States government. It's the military. You know, you, you look at uh, what the impact that Astra is having by, by powering so many satellites in space right now, the impact that we could have if we return to the pad with a vehicle that we can produce at scale. Uh, nation states have attempted and failed to accomplish what Astra has accomplished. Uh, you know, we're one of only a few companies that can, you, I can look up and, and see satellites orbiting Earth uh, that we put there. Not many companies can say that. And we're a company that did it faster uh, than you know the leading private company in our space, and uh, so we have a level of tenacity. Uh, we have we have a, an incredible team that is not going to give up, um, and is obsessed with taking care of our customers. So I've always believed that you know if you've got a great product, and I, and I think we do, um, and you you are focused on your customers, you'll find a way. Um, and I think the United States government needs a uh, a really successful industrial base in space and you've 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 got to look at astra and say you know that's a company that that the united states government really needs to see um continue um and so if i'm a shareholder you know i'm looking at a company obsessed with customers that has some of the largest uh contracts and and powering space systems contracts with nasa for launch contracts with the space force for launch uh this is a company that uh, is is going to work incredibly hard to deliver for these customers, and when we do, uh, we'll be in a much better spot. And um, it's my job as CEO to make sure that uh, we tell that story. It's why I'm here, um, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue to do what we're doing. Work really hard, manage expenses, be really smart and thoughtful about the capital that we're raising, uh, and uh, that's all I can say. What have you learned as uh, a CEO of the company over the last couple of years? Um, you know, being a public company is a completely different ballgame. Do you kind of wish you were still private? <laughs> I would say that, um, you know, the opportunity to, uh, to share uh, the, the we, we were always, we always had investors, right? And, and as a private company, uh, you're very selective about who you give the opportunity to invest. As a public company, you have to you have to put it all out there, right? You have to share everything that you're doing. We've tried to do that as a public company because we wanted to give other people the opportunity to invest in space. 
you know, not just people that knew how to get into a company like a private company uh, uh, venture round. And so, you know, I, you know, I have family members who've, who've put money in the company and, and, and they believe in friends. And, you know, we have, we have people that really, really believe in what we're doing. And so I work really hard every day to try to um, make sure that um, when we're able to ship more of these engines uh, and, and come back to the pad with a launch vehicle, uh, you know, they have the opportunity to participate in, in that side of the, the equation. Um, I would say that the hard part has been it's, there's a lot of things that you have to invest in uh, that are not um, mission, right? So uh, as a private company, you could put almost every dollar into the product, um, into your engineering team. Uh, as a public company, uh, you have to put a lot of um, systems in place. Um, you know, we, we had um, uh, folks, uh, you know, that, um, that sued us, you know, the moment we, we took the company public. And um, but while the suits were dismissed, um, it took, we had to invest a lot of you know, money in, in legal fees and things like that. So, you know, so, so the kind of purest in me, I, I'd love to just put every penny into things that deliver value to customers. And as a public company, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of overhead and cost associated with just um, just be just operating the business. And don't get me wrong, they're necessary. Um, and but but when you're um, operating and you're trying to be very lean, uh, they represent a significant portion of your operating costs. When you wish you could just put every penny into delivering things for your customers. And so um, I would say at times like this, you know, it makes me it makes me question. But uh, I would say. We're fully committed to our shareholders, and we're fully committed to, um, you know, making sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to make the business you know, reduce our expenses and, and, and start to ramp the shipments of our products so we can start to see revenue accrete. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, shareholders are paying attention, and then they're looking at this and they're seeing us uh, fight really hard. Yeah. For that. That, yeah. Look, that's, there's that's there, there's no. I don't think anyone wouldn't use the adjectives tenacity and 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 uh, commitment in terms of describing you and the team and the, the continuous desire to make this work. And, you know, I do think that um, sometimes people forget that um, a lot of the, the, the beauty of sort of the space industry, right. Is that most people are rooting for each other, regardless of what, mo you know, you might think, right. Most people are rooting for each other because every single failure that occurs in the, you know, when Virgin orbit failed, right. You know, it's possible that the competitors are like, oh, yeah, like, look, that's great. Like, clearly didn't work, but, you know, ours is better. But the problem is every single time you have a failure like that, it scares investors away from the sector and the industry. And the more times that that happens, the, the, even the good companies won't get the right funding. Right. So um, I think it's really important. Um, and I do think, um, you know, I'm certainly rooting for you guys and, and, and your success. Um, I think it's extremely important for the industry. I think um, the more companies that don't get to do what they say they're going to do is ultimately going to be, it's going to affect the entire industry at large, right? And it's going to affect com companies' abilities to be to be competitive. So yeah, look, hats off to you, Chris. Like you've had a, um, it's not it's not been easy. Building a rocket is not easy. And and getting to orbit, um, you know, you, you did you did the seemingly impossible getting to orbit. Um, but continuously doing that is, it's difficult. There's no question. So yeah, I just to say, I would just say like uh, you know hats off to you and the team for for uh, for making it to orbit and um, still putting in all you know your time and energy um, and commitment to this business. Um, any last words or message that you want to share? No, I, I think you know I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I think 
you know, a lot of folks are always excited to see um, people drum up, um, you know, competitive dynamics and things like that. But, you know, I, I feel like we're not, I'm not competing um, with, with um, other companies as much as, as I'm competing with time, you know, and with physics, you know, and with have we made the right decisions to invest the right amount of time and the right amount of capital in the right areas to ensure that we have a, a vehicle uh, that works or a spacecraft engine that is, that is reliable every time. And that's, that's what we're competing with every day. It's, it's an, it's an, it's a, an intellectual um, pursuit more than it is a um, competitive pursuit because if we get it right, the market's big enough for all of us. And I, I think so. So I, Frankly, I, I, someone once asked me, you know, how did you feel about uh, the, the Tropics missions being flown up by Rakov? And I said, I, I watched every single one of those flights and I was so incredibly grateful <laughs> to, to, to Rocket Lab and Pete for, for getting those, those other two missions up because it meant that the NASA mission was successful. And so like, you know, getting back to the North Star is we care about our customers and we were able to see those, those, those those fly. I want to come back with Rock 4 with a vehicle that is not only able to address a much larger segment of the market, but but is has the reliability that our customers have clearly and our shareholders have clearly said you need to you need to have. And uh, so so I I, sell, I I definitely applaud you for for that. Uh, you know I sit here every day thinking about how we can make this work, um, not about you know competitive. Yeah, exactly. Well, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll get you back in a year and, and see awesome. how things thanks, are. Man. Looking forward and to it. and uh, yeah, really appreciate it. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Thanks again. Thanks.